Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. This will be Matt Carden's second appearance on Weird Studies. In February of 2019, Matt joined us to explore the implicit metaphysics of speculative fiction genres, fantasy, science fiction, and horror. The takeaway from that conversation, for me at least, was that speculative storytelling is realistic in a way that conventional naturalism isn't, unless, that is, it discloses the magical underlay that gives it shape and coherence. Speculative fiction, we saw, lets in more of what people experience as real, and in doing so, it puts us in touch with the radical mystery of existence. That radical mystery, of course, is something that we've been leaning into lately on Weird Studies, particularly as it manifests in mystical experiences involving what psychologists call derealization and depersonalization. The intuition that finding out what's going on in this universe requires a total abandonment of everything we think might be going on is one we've been circling a lot. Given that this is where the conversation wants to go, and we're only too eager to follow, we invited Matt back on to discuss a theme that he's been developing in his fiction and nonfiction for decades, and that is Dark Awakening, to use the title of one of his books. The idea that deep insight into the nature of reality, most importantly the nature of the self, might be, to put it plainly, terrible. Here is a poignant passage from Matt's essay, Scratches on the Universe's Utmost Rim, from his new collection of nonfiction, What the Demon Said. Quote, Behind the brain, behind the breath, below the deepest layers of the personal unconscious, with its skeleton closet of rapacious Freudian idness, in the place where we reach Jung's and Hillman's archetypes, and then beyond even that, delving into the daimonic substratum of the self, which is the primal residing place of angels, aliens, shadow people, and discarnates, in that deepest, darkest depth of personal selfhood, might we find the very essence of the monstrous, a slumbering cosmic leviathan? Might we be confronted by the crimson glowing eyes and tentacular visage of something beyond endurance, but also beyond escaping, because it is in fact the Zen master's whale upon which we stand while fishing heedlessly for minnows? Matt admits that such thought experiments are performed in a kind of, quote, philosophical hyperspace. His goal isn't to make final claims, but to call our attention to zones of experience and thought that we dearly seek to avoid, points of tension that prevent us from going all the way in our philosophical, artistic, magical, or spiritual endeavors. As the poet Doreen Poritz muses in a recent work, we have forgotten how to live in the cracked open swell of interior darkness. Matt Carden is among those who teach us to live there again, and we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with him. Apparently, my last attempt at cleverly segueing into a Patreon pitch crossed the line between the land of lame dad jokes and cringe country, so I'll spare you for this one time. 
Suffice it to say that without our patrons, Phil, Meredith, and I would be scratching away at the universe's utmost rim all by ourselves, with nary a shoulder to lean on nor an ear in which to pour out our quavering murmurs. Plunging into darkness is more pleasant in the company of friends, and what splendid company we found on Patreon. If you enjoy our show, I hope you'll consider joining us as we continue to plummet, holding hands like a great ring of doomed skydivers, all the giddier for knowing that there's no ground to stop our fall. For the dream, as the bard said, hath no bottom. Though our pockets do, and we appreciate your support. Congratulations, first, Matt, on the publication of your, your this collection of nonfiction that we're kind of commemorating here with this recording, What the Demons Said. Thank you. Essays on horror, fiction, film, and philosophy. I, I've, I've been reading your, I mean, I've been following you on Twitter, and it seems that you're now putting together a collection of your journals. Is that? Yeah, actually, uh, I've got the first volume uh, already. The manuscript minus the introduction is already submitted. And uh, sometime this year, after I can marshal the resources to write that introduction and then put an index together, I'll have a volume one of a two-volume collected journals will be published. So I guess the first question that I've, something I've been wanting to ask you just on a personal level is like, how has it been to like engage in this sort of I don't know, auto archaeology, like, <laughs> like digging, excavating your own past and bringing all this stuff together. Because I know you've been on a very kind of pointed trajectory for decades. Mm-hmm. You're interested in a few, I mean, obviously you read and think very widely and deeply as you encourage us all to do on Teeming Brain. Uh, but you've been very focused on a, a small series of ideas, I find. But through that, there's been this tremendous evolution. How has it been to like kind of like look back on your past, not only with the journals, but with this volume here, which collects like mm-hmm. essays written over a long period of time? It's been uh, bracing and sort of self-revealing and clarifying and uh, embarrassing sometimes. <laughs> because like as you as you pointed out with what you just said, the fact that that book, you know, what the demon said represents a 20-year retrospective of uh, nonfiction pieces that I've actually either published myself at the blog, you know, or had published in a variety of places, that's actually connected in a way, spiritually, to the fact of uh, the journal, which was never written for for publication. But it's been interesting to go to look at my evolution. And we all know that we live ourselves from the inside, right? And most of us are struggling for some form of self-definition, right? And to figure out who we are and so on and so forth. I happened to do this uh, while I was carrying on a a public writing and publishing career. I also did it for myself in uh, private journals. So going back and visiting those things, which I was addicted to, I was, I was, I wrote in them obsessively. I wrote far, far, far more in my journal or journals. I'm not sure whether to refer to it as singular or plural than I ever did or ever will for uh, writing that I intended to be published. You know, it has been, uh, as you called it, an interesting archaeological expedition into myself. And um, it's strange to read all of those 
things and to feel at one time like, yeah, that's me. I remember that. I remember being inside that headspace and rereading what I what I wrote uh, can bring me back into that mind space, emotion space, thought space, all that at the same time as feeling that it's uh, disconnected from me somehow and that's somebody else. So I kind of get the same feeling, not as much of the same feeling from looking at the pieces and what the demon said. Going back and looking at those journal entries has been uh, bizarre. And I kind of got addicted to it there for a while. In, uh, say, February, March, early April, it became one of those sort of obsessive and, as it felt, daimonically driven things where I was stealing every spare moment and a few moments that weren't spare to be transcribing all of those old notebooks. So that's an initial answer. It's been strange and full of its own energy, which has died away right now. I'm halfway through transcribing what will be volume two, and it's just sitting there right now. I'm waiting for the next wave uh, to happen. By the way, the first volume will cover 1993 to 2001, 2002. And the next, I think the first one's 93 to 01, and the next one will be uh, 02 to the present. Interesting what you say about feeling a kind of demoniacal drivenness in this project and also the inconstancy of that that the daemon was there uh fully present in march april and has uh apparently clocked out at least for now mm -hmm. and that's interesting to me because it's relatable because i find myself also heaved this way and that by the coming and going of these mysterious energies or forces that impel a kind of single-minded focus that when I'm not in a period like that, I'm amazed that I was ever able to attain something like that. Because I feel like my default state is uh, sloth and torpor. And when that sort of creative impulse is on me, all of that dispels. Maybe that's a place we can go is thinking a little bit about what you've called on Teeming Brain and elsewhere, daemonic creativity. One of your many endeavors is a course in daemonic creativity, a, a free PDF, at least that used to be on the Teeming Brain. I remember encountering it years ago, long before I met you, and I still have it lying around on my computer somewhere, but uh, I haven't been back to see if it's still there. Where are you at with that project? It's the, the PDF is still there. You can get to it. I think you can find it at the Teeming Brain, but I've given it a permanent uh, home at my author site, mattcarden.com. You know, I have a page of my, uh, about my fiction publications and a page of nonfiction. And on the nonfiction page, you can find the dedicated page from there for a course in demonic creativity. You can download it. That thing, again, was another thing that just sort of erupted out. I mean, it lasted a while, like 2009, 10, 11, I was working at a community college in Waco, Texas, and uh, stuff that had been coming into me and coming out of me for some time sort of started coalescing. And I started a website that was titled uh, demonmuse.com, which I have since abandoned. It's somebody else owns it now and it's just parked. It was, I mean, not the, not the site, but just the domain, you know, right, right. and, and um, demon muse, I just started Right. I really, I kind of branded it, paid someone to have kind of a neat uh, heading, used WordPress as I have for my other stuff and, um, or I mean, a neat banner image, I mean, and, uh, just started writing and publishing these essays about the experience of creativity as a force that is not yours, but that you're collaborating with. Right. And as you've, if you read the PDF, as I know you did, my point is that it doesn't matter if you 
quote-unquote believe this as a literal muse or an external entity, some kind of a Roman genius or, you know, Greek daemon, daemon, demon, or if you just view it as a metaphor and you interpret it in psychological terms, it's the same experience. Yeah. We all have this sense of being inhabited by some other presence. Uh, modern depth psychology would call it your unconscious mind, whatever, that, however it works. You can be a Freudian, you can be a Jungian, you can be a Western occultist pursuing the hermetic tradition, you know, trying to contact your holy guardian angel. Same thing. You don't know why you're interested in this, that, and the other. You don't know why certain thoughts come to your mind and, and why other people aren't tuned the same way. You don't know why memories pop up, ideas come in. These waves of creative energy, like we're talking about in these strange passages, and for me, with things I had read and felt and experienced and intuited for a while, it came together as this idea that I want to explain to myself what I'm thinking about all this. That ended up being the website, which I knew about two months into doing it, would become a book at some point. And then I felt led by the same guidance or whatever to uh, make it be a free ebook, not just not something that I'm going to seek a publisher for. So I put unbelievable amounts of energy, just like you said, Phil, you look back and you go, how in the world did I do that? But you were sort of inhabited by this inspiring force, this enthusiasm yeah. in, the, in the original sense of the term. When you do that, and there it is, and I'm not—I've not done anything further with it. It's in 2011 is when I published the PDF, announced in it that I just kind of felt led by my own demon muse to just put this out there. I had thoughts of uh, an expansion of it that I would seek traditional publication for. Did a little bit of work towards that. Still have those notes. I was contacted in when was this 2017 by uh, an agent who was a, a junior agent at a at an agency that actually you know, has published some interesting things that you would be aware of. And uh, this person had uh, read the PDF while in college and wanted to know if I would be interested in pursuing a longer version and bringing out more the way that demonic creativity, as I framed it, hooks into the apocalyptic sense of the modern world. And I said, sure. I was starting my PhD at the same time. We had some emails right. back and forth, brainstormed a few things. I let it drop off and it's sat there ever since. Right. So for those who haven't uh, looked at this PDF... What do you tell people about the practical business of working with a daemon muse? Because I th it seems to me what's different about that piece of writing is that it has a kind of almost a, a quality of a self-help book or a how-to book. Mm -hmm. It's telling you something about what something you can do that could improve aspects of your life or at least make your life a bit more interesting. Mm -hmm. My point in the book and just my point in general about this is that you can uh, access this experience all the time because it's always there if you tune into it. And as for the self-help aspect, what I do in the in the book, which is what I did in the source articles at the website, was simply codify, so to speak, for myself, a series of exercises and steps and also just sort of attitudes and mental positions, understandings one can take for framing, if you feel so led to do, framing for yourself deliberately your experience of creativity and the actions that arise from that as a collaboration. And think of it that way and feel it that way. And when you do that, there's a philosophical component. So I lay out in the book so, uh, a, a potted history of these ideas among ancient Greek and Roman ideas and a little bit of Western esotericism and so on. But then I move on from there to uh, sort of laying out a provisional model of how it works and then offering advice as far as what to do. And the advice consists of things like uh, setting up practices that will help you tune in and hear 
the voice of this thing, which I never have heard a physical voice or an auditory voice. I'm thinking of it just as a series of feelings and impressions, like morning writing, you know, uh, Julia Cameron's morning pages or something like that, or hooking into what um, you have in Writing Down the Bones, you know, Natalie Goldberg's book on writing. She just calls it writing practice, which arose out of her Zen practice, this flow writing state. I talk about looking for the different times of day and tools, what kind of pens or pencils or typing or whatever seems to work best with your particular demon muse or diamond muse. My point is that you can think of it as having a set of desires of its own, a personality, a schedule, a set of themes it's interested in, just like you would with a human collaborator. And so you can take various steps to come into tune with it and figure out there's a best way to work that will actually result in, I guess you could say, your innate gift not dying with you. You know that line in the Thomas Gospel that the most famous translation is, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you don't bring forth what is in, within you, what is within you will destroy you. Yeah, That's something of what I have in mind. Figure out how it wants to work and learn to align your life so that you're working well with it and doing the work that it and therefore you, since it's like your other self, were born to do. Fantastic. One of the things I love about your work is that, uh, well, it's in the title, right? So you wrote, uh, how, do you, how do you pronounce, da- da- do you say daemon or demon? Or? When I, in the, the new book, right, the essay book, I, I did the, uh, the Romanized spelling D-A-E-M-O-N, which I, ju- I just say demon. When you have the D-A-I-M-O-N, I really don't know ancient Greek all that well. I've always said uh, daimon. I know some people say say daimon. I may be saying it wrong. Um, but uh, when I had the website uh, named Demon Muse, actually my most immediate inspiration for that was from an interview that Ray Bradbury gave that you could still find online where he said, he was very old at that point, and he said, I have a demon muse. This was in the aughts, I think. And he says, I have a uh, a muse that speaks to me, but it's my demon that provokes me. So I use the demon spelling because I like the provocativeness of it. And then I titled the book, A Course in Demonic Creativity. I've wished ever since I first published that, first posted that PDF, that I had chosen either daimonic or D-A-E-M-O-N-I-C because, you know, it can give the wrong impression. But what's interesting about that is that the term demon, as you write it, D-A-E, kind of hovers and it kind of unstable state between demon and daimon. Mm-hmm. The point I wanted to make by bringing that up was that like course in demonic creativity is participating in a, a kind, there's a certain trend that starts with Jung, right? This idea that you should do shadow work. You should work with your unconscious. You, the, what, what is inside has to come out. If it doesn't come out through your mouth and through your own actions, it'll come out in your environment as uh, Jung says. Mm-hmm. And it will become your fate. So there's a kind of emancipatory dimension to engaging in this sort of work with the demon, the daimon. Where you differ from a lot of the other thinkers who write about this sort of thing is that you always inflect the material with a tinge of horror, or at least an openness to the possibility that it bottoms out in something that is not just um, strange, but actually like profoundly weird. And your choice of spelling seems to point to this ambiguity that you always maintain. You're not going to go for the pastels of the new age version of this, right? You're always going to go for this kind of basalt (laughs) colored uh, uh, version of it, which, I mean, it's not opposed to a, a more, let's say, 
optimistic or um, let's say therapeutic and not that there's nothing therapeutic in the way you said, you know what I'm saying? There's a kind of like embrace of the darkness and I'm trying to work our way towards the idea of, um, of dark awakenings and that sort of thing. So is this just a a temperamental thing on your part or is there kind of a philosophical project behind all that? Yes, indeed. Yes to both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I might go back to, uh, there's, I oh mean, there's so many tangents I could take. One thing I'll do is point out that you mentioned Dark Awakenings, which was my second yeah. fiction collection, which wasn't actually a fiction collection. It's a fiction, nonfiction collection. Remember, it has what, five, four or five short stories and one uh, novella and then three um, essay length pieces, all of which are incorporated, the essays in the new book too. Yeah. And I opened that as I opened the new book with a set of epigraphs in the form of quotations, only they were really, really long, you know, and um, I titled them at the beginning, the uh, Apologia Pro Libro Suo, you know, an an apology, an explanation for this book. And uh, one of them was a real long excerpt from, uh, now I'm going to forget the name of the essay by Robert Frost. Isn't it the idea a poem makes? Isn't that the name of the essay? That may be wrong. Possibly. But he describes uh, in there, he goes into a long riff, which totally uh, captured me the first time I read it. So I included it at the start of Dark Awakenings about the difference between the poet and the scholar or like, like the poet or the artist and the scholar. And he says, a scholar gathers information along organized, projected lines of inquiry, right? A scholar is setting out in a systematic fashion to research and study the thing that he or she is setting out to research and study and gains that information in some sort of systematic way. And he says the difference between that and a poet or an artist is uh, the metaphor he uses is that a poet or an artist is like wandering through a field and burrs are just sticking to the clothing, right? right? And so it's not that you aren't taking in things, but it's that this is just happening and you're making sense of it like as the wake that trails behind you. That's my own metaphor, not his. And so the thing is what I've done over time in all of these areas and the way you're talking about is sort of, obviously I'm doing the, the poetic artistic thing in the short fiction, but a lot of people have pointed out, they've called my stories really dense and they point out how they sort of have a, an academic scholarly tinge to them sometimes when they're not getting all weird and experimental, you know, and uh, definitely I have the nonfiction thing, which I kind of, you've got the retrospective look at it and what the demon said. What I've done is uh, sort of carry out the, the appearance of having some sort of theme or idea or set of themes and ideas that I'm pursuing in a scholarly fashion. But what I've been doing is scholarship in the mode of Frost's poet, <laughs> you know, I'm right. just sort of following this inner thread and maybe more people do that than don't. Maybe when he sort of laid out those idealized archetypes, there really never was as much a division between them as it seems. I don't know if this adds anything to the conversation. You're familiar with the Enneagram, both of you probably, the Enneagram personality system. I tried for the longest time to figure out whether I was a four with a five wing or a five with a four wing. You know, a four is your, um, your poetic, artistic, individualist type who revels in emotion and artistic creation and wants to communicate that, you know, and have their individuality shown. The five is the scholarly intellectual information gathering type. And as you know, a wing in the Enneagram system means you may be the one type, but one of the adjacent types in their diagram is basically going to be the way that you express your type, right? I figured out a while back that I'm a four with a five wing. I'm definitely the sort of 
artistic type driven by the passions and inspiration and so on and so forth, who to not a complete extent, but a large extent expresses that in a way that looks like it's rational, ordered, scholarly, that kind of thing. So my intent is more expressing emotion and sort of, I guess for some reason I get this charge from knowing that I have somehow involved other people in, I've conveyed that to them, done what the artist or the poet wants to do, right? Communicate this thing so that it's recreated by the reading of the poem or the viewing of the piece of work or whatever in the other person's space. Going back to your original question in a long-winded fashion, the thing about being interested in uh, sort of the dark and the horror aspect, part of that I think is just goes back to the question of like the demon muse. Why are some people tuned to be interested in certain things? Other parts, which may not be disconnected from that, have to do with the uh, the life period that I went through late in college and then in the in the wake of my undergraduate years when I was really struggling to figure out how to kind of fit together these things that I'm interested in with being a family person, you know, married, raising a child, and also being out in the world of profession and career, which just for who knows why seemed to me this utterly despair-laden place that I could not imagine myself having some kind of way to fit into. And also, which goes back to being an Enneagram type four, maybe. And then also um, the uh, sleep paralysis attacks that started happening early after I got out of college that darkened my worldview. And when I reflected on it and on them in light of other things, I started feeling like whether this is real or not, I'm suspended in this Robert Anton Wilson place of agnosticism. You know, is the dog star serious communicating telepathic messages to me or not? I don't know. Is this thing visiting me in my sleep paralysis visions something real or not? Or what does even real mean? So my ontological basis was destabilized and darkened. And suddenly the way these things come out have this dark edge. I think the divine, whatever it is, has both faces. And I think I've sort of been tuned into both equally. I said at one point in somewhere, was it an interview? It was an interview somewhere years ago. And I can't remember. It may be one of the ones collected in that book that in my personal spiritual life and spiritual practice, I'm sort of tend to, I pursue the, uh, the beatific vision, you know, and I'm looking for a non-dual awakening and that kind of thing. When I've sort of put on a fiction maker's lens, which then bleeds over into the other, it tends to go all dark. And so I've written horror stories, and that's obviously coming from someplace real too. Yeah, you are a rabbit duck kind of guy, it seems to me. You know <laughs> what I mean? The, the famous rabbit duck illustration. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or the old woman and the young woman, right? The same. Right, right, right. Same thing where you can't see both images at the same time, or at least I could never see them both simultaneously, but you can oscillate between them very rapidly and it's, and maintain a certain awareness that you're looking at the same line figure on the page, but you can experience this rapid oscillation of meanings, this identical figure, but just, but it's meaning oscillates. This seems to be a pattern through a number of different things you've mentioned. So you're just talking about being an Enneagram four wing five or a five wing four. I'm five wing four to the best of my knowledge. So I can relate. But, you know, that kind of ambiguity of doing scholarship in a spirit of poetry, or for that matter, writing weird fiction in a spirit of scholarship. Rabbit Duck, you can see, you know, a story, or for that matter, one of the essays in What the Daemon Said, as, uh, you know, it's possible to read a nonfiction essay like the Chapel Perilous essay, where you talk a bit about your personal experiences being, on the one hand, an individual investigation of things that actually happened and therefore nonfiction, 
But then at the same time, and I, I often feel that the best essays are like this. You can totally read them as fiction. Yeah. And they give off a charge. They give off a certain power. Likewise, one of the themes that runs through your nonfiction, and this is related to spirituality, which you do talk about a certain amount in some of the, the interviews in this book, is the way it is possible to experience the world as beatific, as a place of light and love and all that, all that good stuff. And almost simultaneously, or at least in this kind of oscillating rabbit ducky sort of manner, something also that is pure horror. Mm -hmm. JF was reminding me before we got talking, before you came on the call, of a line in one of the, your essays. I think it might have been the Chapel Perilous essay, where you, you don't say, I was horrified. You say something more like, everything was horror. It's like things like the experience itself. I was, yeah, I think I remember the line. It's something like, it wasn't that I was feeling horror. It's just the experience was just pure horror. There was no me experiencing it. It was just right. all horror. Yeah. Right. And it's in right. connection with your sleep paralysis experiences, if I remember. So there's one type of transcendence, which is not necessarily great, right? And uh, along the way, those burrs that stick to you uh, have just come along. And I know you're both familiar with that. You're both really tuned into synchronicity. You talked about it, JF, you know, Jung's idea of the psyche becoming externalized. I don't, that doesn't just happen, of course, when you're repressing things. It's not just like Jung's version of Freud's return of the repressed coming at you in a bad way. It's just in, in a way of maybe guiding you. There's the positive aspect of guiding you down a path, right? I encounter things along the way like, um, are you familiar with John Horgan, the science writer? I think he writes for Scientific American now. He's written a number of books, uh, The End of Science. I think he was a book. Um, there's a book that... He's uh, written a bit about Buddhism. Too, he has, right? yes. And the book that really turned me on to him was I was getting my master's degree in religion at the time and saw it in the university library at Missouri State. And now I have my copy here. It's titled Rational Mysticism. And I think oh, yeah. he's I think he's retitled... It was republished in a new edition with a different subtitle. The original title was something like Dispatches from the Border Between Science and Spirituality. But he, uh, it's brilliant. He, he, it was one of those, it was in that genre of books that shows someone going around talking to different key individuals in a field, you know, and he, he uh, talked with Terrence McKenna and he talked with Houston Smith and all this kind of thing. But he, he, he frames the whole thing uh, from the beginning in terms of him having uh, taken ayahuasca, him, this science writer who's thought about, a science journalist who's thought about science a lot and is tuned into that world, but is interested in spirituality, going somewhere, I forget where, it's in the desert somewhere in the U.S., and um, having an ayahuasca experience. And um, he, I forget it was if it was in that experience, it may have been in that, that first experience or another one. He describes this horrific Gnostic nightmare that he lived in that altered entheogenic state, you know? And uh, he ended up in this space where he was identified with something like a demiurge. And uh, there was just this eternity of blind, dark, emptiness, you know, nothing to see, no one to know. Now I sound like I'm quoting Thomas Ligotti, right? And uh, it was just this horrible thing. And he went and talked with Ken Wilbur as one of his stops, and he tells Wilbur about it. And Wilbur's like, wow, that can't have been pleasant. And the whole book is sort of framed by this traumatic spiritual experience that he had and his attempt to come to terms with it. Well, that's something that I came across, you know, when all these things were really hot in me over a span of years. These things just kept on happening with me. And so I saw other people 
that I thought were interesting and were drawing themselves on the network of ideas and writers and thinkers that I'm interested in saying, wow, I'm encountering this dark side of whatever this spiritual reality is that we're all trying to divine or intuit. That sort of grew in me and grew out of me. When mm-hmm. I hear people tell me that uh, their day was changed and darkened or their, or they really felt themselves altered or something like that by something, by a story of mine that they read, I find that interesting because on one level, I find that gratifying. On another level, it's almost like, well, sorry, because you may have some of the same thing that's made certain things so unpleasant for me. Right, right. Now, I haven't read Horgan's uh, book, Rational Mysticism. It's a book that I remember seeing on the shelf at a, a bookstore that I used to go to in Toronto. I never got it, but um, it's worth it. But, and and yeah. now there are no more bookstores in Toronto, so that yeah. experience <laughs> is gone from from the earth. I went to Book City last time; it's still there. Not Book City, uh, BMV on Bloor, uh, still still kicking. And I got uh, a bunch of great books. It was such. It was the first time I went into a bookstore since the COVID business started. But you know, I haven't read Horgan, but I I I have had exactly that experience. I've been. I know exactly the place he went. <laughs> I was there. And what's interesting was that, in the context of my own journey to that place, which I mean, it was a place that felt very familiar when I ended up there under the influence of psychedelics and in the ritual context I was in. It was a place that felt familiar because it was a place that I'd gleaned, I'd I'd glimpsed before when I was suffering from panic disorder and that sort of thing earlier, um, a few years earlier. And in fact, it was, I think that it was those, those, it was that panic that eventually led me to the place where I ended up having the ayahuasca experience. And what was interesting, though, is that, you know, Phil brought in the idea of oscillation, is that the way it happened was that that dark, I call it viper space in my journals, um, because it felt like a a universe made of um, interlocked or interwoven vipers, like black oil vipers. Anyways, it was this really dark place, but it, it flipped. It flipped like a some kind of quanta, like, you know, it just suddenly flipped into its opposite. And then the same space became the absolute opposite of that. Uh, And I, and I knew it to be the same space. It was really interesting. And it's like C.S. Lewis's idea that the fires of hell are basically God's love resisted, you know, in a certain way. And uh, now this is kind of conjuring up ideas of Rudolf Otto and the sacred as uh, terrible and, uh, and, and fascinating at the same time. Do you relate to that ambiguity? Are you, are you, cause sometimes when I'm reading you, I get the sense that you're hinting at the possibility of that opposite experience, the opposite of uh, the kind of blissful version of that as being somehow maybe false. I have, only the so horror I, is real. I have yeah. said something at one point in writing about the idea that, uh, that I've been fascinated at times. Yes. With the idea that, um, that ultimate reality uh, is not just sometimes available to us or presenting to us in the guise of the horrific, but that uh, as a necessity from the human point of view, because of just what the human point of view fundamentally is, that it must appear as a, a horror. It must appear as an ultimate horror from the human point of view. The thing is, I think there's even a, the duality that you're talking about, the flip applies even there. I don't think you can go far enough to say anything that would make that normative. Even if I were to say that, say, absolutely, the, it, it is ultimately horrific from the human point of view. Well, when you pass beyond the human point of view, 
right. it's not necessarily going to be ultimately horrific. And with awakening being defined as, as your best non-dual teachers will point out, not an individual ego awakening, which is impossible, but awakening from the dream of ego, then that horror would be gone. So that flip is there. I don't know why, to me, these hints and intuitions of the horror of it, of your identity being breached, the personal cosmos that is created by the horizon of your identity, your perception, your mind, your subjectivity, you know, being a Lovecraftian thing so that you get the, so that for my mind is always, you have the opening uh, section of Lovecraft's supernatural horror literature invoked when he talks about the uh, dark shapes that may be scratching on the outer rim of the known universe and all that kind of thing. I don't know why that tends to be where I've gone, but I think it's one valid experience to sort of view from the human point of view, all these things, divine reality as being like Lovecraftian outside you know, cosmic outside horrors. But it, that again, I don't think you can actually say that's ultimate because it actually no qualities would attach to that. It's almost like it's not just axiomatic, but self-evident if, if somebody really starts digging into it. So whatever it is, it is such that it's the reason why you have that duality built into, say, the Hebrew scriptures, where God is right. wonderful and awful and our God is a consuming fire and our God is love and all that thing. And it goes into the New Testament. You know, people are... You've seen me write about this before. People are both wondrously struck by joy and absolutely scared out of their wits and even faint in the case of the Roman soldiers at Jesus's tomb in some of the resurrection narratives when appearances of the divine happen. And you have it in Hinduism and elsewhere. I just think that uh, it's almost like turtles all the way down. It's duality all the way down, even though I have tended to find some kind of, again, there's that unaccountable drive to pursue the horrific end of it. I, I, well, I think that the horrific end kind of has to be affirmed if because the tendency will just be to turn away from it. But as you said in our the first episode we recorded together in 2019, it's like horror is fiction for people who don't look away or it's fiction about not looking away. So yep. it seems like it would be necessary to emphasize that side, especially if from a human perspective, as you say, the horror is necessary. It's, uh, and I have to say that the flip in my experience, it, does, did inv it didn't just flip spontaneously. It flipped after what I can only describe as an, uh, like death, like an actual death. Um, mm -hmm. So it, was, it did require a kind of complete self-abandoning in order mm -hmm. to flip. So psychotherapeutically, this makes a lot of sense. You, know, you, you resist something, and then once you accept it, that's the first step towards adapting to it. So there was, uh, mm -hmm. you, know, you could just put in very kind of plain psychological terms, although it felt like much more than that at the time. But uh, I really, really appreciate the uh, attention you give to that side of it. I think that's super important. So, Well, thank you. Yeah. You know, and as you say, what lies beyond is without qualities. So it's like you're either going to approach it dualistically or you're not going to touch it. And there's a certain sense on my end, having grown up in a very uh, conventional evangelical American Christian environment, you know, and having lived in a lot of those environments throughout my adult life, too. There's a certain sense of not exactly identical to Poe's imp of the perverse, but there's a certain sense of wanting to perturb people wherever they stand. If, in fact, they have subtle dogmatisms, especially if they're the kind that lock them into spiritual positions where they want to, at all costs, affirm that things are cozy and nice. Maybe right. that's a mean oh, way to go about that. it, but I don't care if you're, I don't care what, what tradition you belong to or a philosophical tradition, you know, uh, not necessarily a religious tradition. I, I find an energy in saying, oh, really? Being Socratic about it, but maybe in a 
particularly nasty way, like, did you ever consider that this thing that you think is so wonderful might in fact open hell's gates? You know, that type of thing. This interests me. I'm wondering if we can stick on this for a moment. I think that American Protestantism, evangelical Protestantism, is generally in the weirdest sphere, the kind of domain of alternative spirituality and the kind of stuff we do in the show. I feel like in the weirdest sphere generally, there's a f- assumption that nothing interesting is coming from evangelical Christianity, that that's sort of the other, the normal or normie spirituality against which neo-paganism or, you know, Buddhism or hermeticism or whatever is defined. These various other religions are defined negatively against the, the big other of evangelical Christianity. But my impression is that who you are and the extraordinary journey or journeys, plural, that you've been on that a lot of that is not really extricable from your spiritual background and that that background is not just background, it continues to inform who you are in the present day. Do you feel like talking about that? Sure, and you're right, and it does. And uh, I have a lot of love and respect for evangelical Christians and Christianity, and I know exactly the negative bias that you're talking about. And it applies not just to evangelicalism, but in large part to Christianity as a whole. You see it getting cavalierly slammed and in really nasty, mean ways on social media by people who were involved in uh, what in America's context still is a alternative spiritual areas, you know, or by people in the weird fiction community. Although you have some notable exceptions, you know, there are some people who are pretty forthrightly Christian or, or in some form who write horror and weird fiction. But um, I grew up in the independent Christian church, the first Christian church was the first Christian church of my hometown. And that's not Disciples of Christ, which is the today's liberal. You know, you might see First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. They're very socially, politically liberal. The independent Christian church movement is a Christian restorationist movement. The whole Stone Campbell thing coming out of the 18th and 19th centuries, the idea of refounding New Testament Christianity minus all the accretions over time. So it's kind of like an ultimate Protestantism, you know. That's what I grew up in. 
Um, it's very theologically, socially, politically conservative, but I still have a lot of love and respect for such people and such churches. And there is actual religious and spiritual value in it, not just in overturning it. You know, when I got my PhD, I, I wrote the whole thing on Oswald Chambers. He's like an evangelical hero. I don't know if you're familiar with Chambers. No. He wrote, or actually his wife, after he died, assembled from uh, lots of his uh, sermon, her, her notes on his sermons and lectures and so on, a book titled My Utmost for His Highest, which is the most influential and best-selling uh, daily devotional book of all time. He was a Scottish preacher and uh, missionary and a chaplain for, not chaplain, a, a president for a while of a Bible college in England, and um, ended up dying of appendicitis while serving as a YMCA chaplain to British Commonwealth troops over in Egypt during World War I. Died early at like 44, I think it was. But he was this human dynamo, and he's an evangelical hero. You know, his book was published originally in England, but it caught hold in America in the mid-20th century, early 20th century, and like people like Billy Graham and some others and uh, really promoted it. He's, he's amazing. He's brilliant. You, you can find lots of spiritual value in his stuff, and it, it's really completely evangelical. But he was an evangelical mystic. That's the only thing to call him. And such things do exist. And a lot of people in the alternative spiritual sets, like we say, whether it's whether it's Eastern religions uh, in, in America right now, or whether it's, you know, neo-paganism or whatever, they uh, don't want don't to hear anything from anything that smacks of evangelicalism. But there are guys like Chambers, who was a deep thinker, and, you know, for him, yeah. Christ and God and so on and so forth had these profound depths. He was even tuned into the dark side. I, I've loved some quotes from him that are talking about things like, he has one line that says, people want to look for a silver lining. You know, people, and he's thinking about all the horrors that he was seeing people endure during World War One, right? People want to look for a silver lining and say, oh, God's going to make it okay, and so on and so forth. What's the line? He says, um, that's doing a disservice to people. He says, there are some clouds that are black all the way through. Well, people yeah. are not used to an evangelical Christian thinking that way in terms of God and life and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm being dilatory here as I say these things. If God himself had to cry out, ask himself why... He had forsaken himself, <laughs> you know, yeah. according to, so we, the, nobody's going to save you from this. You know, the message seems to be that you have this, we touched on this with Duncan Barford a few episodes ago, where he was describing this moment when he was very ill. Uh, he is a seasoned meditator, magical practitioner, a guy who's trained very, very hard and doing some really, really powerful ascetic work over many, many years. And he found that in his sickness, it all went away, he says. Mm -hmm. All of his training disappeared and he was left like kind of naked before this thing we're talking about before, the horror, I guess. And he, the words that kept you know, echoing through his mind were, Father, why have you forsaken me? And there he'd never been Christian. I mean, I'm, I don't want to speak for him. I'm just putting that out as a an example. And uh, there is, uh, I find just to stick to the Christianity thing, because I'm, I'm a Catholic and I make a point now mentioning that early on when I meet someone, as early as it is convenient and makes sense to do so, because I just want to spare them the eventual embarrassment of having said some god-awful things about Catholicism in my presence and then figuring out later on that I'm Catholic and going, oh my God, what was I saying? Uh, although some of them would feel no guilt about having said them at all. The vitriol against Christianity, as understandable as it is in the political context of our times, is actually quite um, 
I find that it's costly. It's costly because it prevents the alternative spiritual world from knowing how much mysticism and non-dualism there is in the West. Mm -hmm. The idea that you could only find such things by leaving is kind of silly to me because there's so much there if you were only to look. So I, I don't know. It's a personal thing for me, but I've, yeah. Me too. Me too. Yeah. And the idea, I guess, for me would be that Christianity, including Catholicism, including evangelicalism, right? Uh, these things are paths to get there, wherever there is, you know, and, and we all yeah. have a, a, some intuitive sense of where there is. They're not lesser paths. I, and my, to my mind, I guess, uh, I would think that a lot of people are hung up on the culture war version of Christianity. Yeah. And in various ways, Catholicism and in various ways, evangelicalism are taking their own beating right now in the United States and elsewhere. But uh, if you can get past the culture war version, where you're hung up on social, political, and economic issues as if those are the only things that exist or matter in this or any other context, you can find that, no, they really are. These things really are spiritual paths that uh, have depth and power and purpose. And I, I mean, do I have to add the, the disclaimer that says this is not to excuse any of the valid right. criticisms or excesses and so on and so forth, because those are real, but to try yeah. and find some place where it's not the case. Let's talk about, uh, just to name one thing, neo-paganism and all the bullshit that has infected it and the people who have seen it and called it out and, and said, no, but there's something real here that's of real value, too. It's the same thing. Yeah. One of my little pet peeves, not major pet peeves, a tiny pet peeve, is when people say, I don't believe in religion. And when their experience is that they came up in some church that perhaps it was a bad community, perhaps it was a church that encouraged a certain kind of abuse of an intolerant attitude towards congregants, its members. And the person then looks at that experience and says, that's religion, and I don't believe in that, so I don't believe in religion. And, you know, the obvious rejoinder would be to say, well, there's many religions, right? But, you know, at the same time, there is perhaps some validity in saying, I don't believe in religion, because there is a kind of common core of abusiveness when you see in any tradition, as you just pointed out, whether we're talking about neo-paganism or evangelical Christianity or Catholicism or Buddhism or, I mean, you know, I like to point out there's such a thing as fascist Buddhism in present-day Myanmar. Uh, everybody wants to cut the Buddhists some slack, but, you know, there is this thing in religion that always seems to be a part of the package deal. But if your problem is on the level of like just religion, that part of human experience that asks questions pertaining to some metaphysical absolute, and you say that part and parcel, that is no longer what you want to do, what you're, what you're about. You don't want to investigate reality on that level. Uh, then it seems to me that that plays into a sundering of self and world that you discuss at some length in especially your Frankenstein essay from What the Daemon Said. I was delighted reading through this book to see how often you mention Theodore Rozak. Hmm. He's a, somebody I really like. He is sort of, I think of him as somewhat in the same breath as M.C. Richards similar age, they came up in a similar time, and a similarly liminal figure sort of on that border between doing scholarship and doing poetry. In any event, Rojak's 
critique of science as a kind of not specifically the technical procedures by which science is done, but as an epistemology, as a general way of relating to the world. I don't know if I want to completely unpack Rozak's way of thinking, but he talks a lot about this Roger Bacon, this Baconian cut that we make in reality between in here and out there, what he calls in his book on counterculture, which is the one that I'm familiar with, the myth of objectivity. And he's using the word myth in a kind of compendious sense, both as in the sense of something untrue, but also in the sense of something that's true in a certain sense, like a story that bears a truth. He's thinking of science as a myth in that sense. And in thinking about the myth of objectivity, it's like this idea of a subjectivity that somehow is not a part of what it beholds. And by trying to push as much of the world of reality onto the other side of that line between in here and out there, what and Nietzsche actually made a similar comment in uh, Twilight of the Idols, where it's just like you get to the end of the process, surprise, motherfucker, there's no in here anymore. <laughs> and there's no out there like you lose yourself in a sense. There's a kind of a self alienation. Yeah. One thing as an educator that haunts me is the feeling that in higher education, what we have is a suite of tools or a way of looking at the world that is fully a part of that you know, myth of objectivity. And as you point out, using Houston Smith's thinking, angling that off of Rozak, how the things that science is manifestly unequipped to deal with, questions of value and purpose and meaning, those questions all are either handled in a grotesquely inadequate way or not handled at all, treated as non-questions and non-issues. So getting back to our hypothetical person who, quote-unquote, doesn't believe in religion, I worry about such people, such people that we see so often in flight from an abusive religious background, seeking in modern education deliverance from that, and finding deliverance from that as well, but then at a certain point also reaching a point where they no longer have the resources that religion, in that very vague and general sense, is sort of there to give you. So I know that we're talking to somebody who's not just a fiction writer, not just a nonfiction writer, but also a college administrator. You're somebody who works in and is closely involved with questions of higher education. So I guess I've, in this rather long comment, I've moved from talking about religion to epistemology now to education. This is the point where if I were at an academic meeting and I were blabbing on at the mic after someone's paper, they would be like, is there a question in there? And so I would be like, this is really more of a comment than a question. See if, you, see if there's anything in there that's, that you can work with. I'm a great fan of the uh, the art of the extemporaneous riff. Yes, <laughs> I understand that. That's one of the only ways I communicate in these settings. And then I wonder later, am I going to listen to this and think, what the hell was I talking about? And, and, and is everyone else going to wonder that as well? See, what you just said was full of interesting stuff, Phil. And uh, I guess part of my response would be, 
that I agree with you that people who just reject religion out of hand because of a bad personal experience that they've had and rather than investigate and maybe make some kind of reasoned rejection because they, they've consciously generalized what they experienced and saw and come up with a reflective attitude that they, this, from which they think that, no, in an informed way, I think religion is bad. The contrast between that and somebody who mistakes their own little sealed-off world of a, of a particular cultural inflection of religion as religion and then rejects that, that's a seriously problematic thing. On the other hand, to invoke a really somewhat between silly and fraught word that may just be their karma, you know, karma viewed in the broad sense of these waves that are rippling out that are you and that just have to play themselves out throughout life. Who knows where that will end, right? But yes, that can be in a conventional sense a problem if someone does that. And I see a lot of people, I think, do that. As far as its connections to uh, epistemology and education and so on, I think we're all sort of fighting our way through to the same not not to the same place, but it's like we're all fighting a version of the same battle, which is trying to figure out who we are, how we relate to the world, and how we understand this experience into which we have been thrust, right? On the education end, yes, I'm a college administrator. I'm a vice president of a college right now. And uh, before that, I uh, was a faculty member. You know, I mean, I had a couple of administrative positions before this one, but up until 18, I taught uh, composition and, and literature and some uh, world religions and some classes on religion and the supernatural and literature and such for a while. And I saw students up close who were seeking and interested and some were disconnected and so on and so forth. But my most interesting thing in college as an administrator or as a faculty member has been to find out where people are coming from and just try to meet them there. I feel like that's almost a substanceless comment, kind of bland, but, um, I have certain ideas. I've read so much. Maybe I'm like the, both of you. I sometimes have to struggle to, not struggle, I have to assiduously remember to remind myself that uh, it's fine to read books and learn other people's systems of thought and maybe even develop this sort of organized or semi-organized sense of where I'm coming from with ideas and a framework and so on. And yet, even though that's fine, it's important to set it aside and just sort of greet life as it comes and always have a beginner's mind and so on and so forth. I, mm -hmm. I learned a lot about that by teaching first high school for six years and then college for nine years where it's like people don't correspond to your preconceived notions of them, even if they display some attitudes or behaviors or say some things that could easily be looped into a stereotype of who they are. They're not really that stereotype. So for me, greeting people on a daily basis and teaching classes on world religions, for example, or even my composition classes where I always tended to lead things in philosophical directions. That's been an interesting thing to see people coming from different backgrounds on the religious or any other basis. What do you think? Mm -hmm. What do you believe? Why do you believe that? I think I mentioned Socrates earlier, right? I've always felt like right. I'm pretty, I'm congenitally Socratic and that becomes more apparent to me and, and it becomes more apparent what that means over time. It's like, why would someone reject religion, for example? That's a great topic for a freshman to write in an essay, by the way. You, could, you probably couldn't get away with that at a publicly funded institution and have them write about their religious background and you know how they relate to that and why. You'd have to frame it carefully. But I just find that this is some of the riffing that your, your thoughts lead me to. Now I'm an administrator, so I don't have that much contact with students, not as much as I used to, especially since I've only been at my current college for nine or 10 months right now when we're in a institutional accreditation period, which I'm in charge of. So I haven't taken to teaching any classes yet mm. because I don't have the time, but uh, yeah, all that stuff together.
So of the three of us, I'm by far the least experienced teacher because I started teaching last year online. <laughs> cool. But it's been such a great experience. I feel like I got some practice from running Dungeons and Dragons games for 40 years, 30, 35 years. So that at least prepared me to like speak to a group. Okay. But that's about the extent of it. But I'm finding that, I mean, Phil has given me some amazing advice and I, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm getting a lot from that as well. The thing about Socrates is that he systematically... It's a funny word to use in this context, but he systematically applied an I-thou kind of frame to his relationships with other people. This is something that's uh, you can't mistake it when you read Plato's dialogues, is that Socrates will take even, like, the sophists come up to him, and he takes them completely seriously. Yes, they are engaging in abstract dialogue about concepts and all sorts of things, but it's first and foremost, I think, in Plato which is why Plato so, takes so much care of setting the scene. This is happening outside of Athens in a park. The point is that Socrates applies this beginner's mind thing every time he meets a new interlocutor and then builds something with them. And so that, just thinking about it in those terms, brought to mind uh, Martin Buber's I and Thou, which I think you've written about that book. I don't, know that I, have, no. I don't know that okay. I have or not. I've never actually read I and Thou. I'm familiar with the basic thrust. Oh, it's very, it's, it's a fantastic, fantastic essay. And Phil and I have discussed the I and thou method being applied to like trees and stuff. Like if you take a walk and you just look at a tree and instead of thinking it in your head, you just address it as thou and suddenly the tree becomes the first tree, <laughs> you know, it becomes, it becomes treeness embodied in your life. And I think that's probably the hardest thing about teaching, I'm assuming, is that with time, you start to lose that sense of I-thou-ness and you start to apply kind of like it, kind of like grouping the group into an it. And then that gives you a sense of a false sense of security with regard to your own kind of epistemic paradigm that you're applying. And I guess remembering to make yourself dumb again uh, with each new meeting is kind of maybe that's one of the keys to teaching well. I don't know. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, yeah. It's uh, like you said, the Socrates and beginner's mind, you know, let's bring together some Zen with uh, the Western <laughs> philosophical tradition. That's exactly what it is. That's that's perfect. And I had to remind myself of that every single day. I still have to as an administrator, right? And I don't always successfully do it, but everything is new all the time, including the people that you meet. If you think you actually understand, if you think your expectations totally encompass people, and pointedly in what we're talking about, the students that you're going to be speaking with, right? If, they're, if they actually effectively predict who those people are and what they're going to say and do and so on and so forth, that would A, be boring. And yeah. uh, B, if you really think that you're completely lost in your own crap, because, <laughs> you know, this reality right here is not the same. This moment right here is and is not the same moment as when I started speaking this very sentence. You know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. It's always yeah, brand that's new. Right. Yeah. You know, a while ago... You were talking about, um, oh, hold on for a second. Let Sorry me. to interrupt, Phil. I, I have yeah. to, I'll be back in two minutes. You can start without me. I'll be right back and I can. No, we'll wait. We'll wait. It's cool. Oh, oh yeah. I'll be right back. Uh, actually, I'm glad that he just left because I had one of those moments becoming increasingly common as I get older where I'm like, what the fuck was I going to say? Um, trust uh, me, I'm, I'm so familiar. <laughs> I really, that loss of acuity there, by the way, I don't mean to knock that thought out. That thing where you realize you're, it's getting fuzzier. Boy, that's interesting when you consciously know it, it is. 
at one point before, you know, I'm from Southwest Missouri. I was born in Arkansas, raised in Southwest Missouri my whole life. And then I just got back like a year and a half ago from a dozen years in Texas. And right before we moved to Texas, there was this brief period where this opportunity came up in a tiny town near the tiny town where I was living to be a, uh, a hospice chaplain. That was interesting. Oh, kind of pursued right. that for a couple of months and then we left the state. So I wasn't sure what I thought of that, but it was really intriguing and possibly exciting that never happened. But I was reading some of the literature, you know, and uh, I didn't mm -hmm. I didn't know until then that the hospice was actually built not just around the medical stuff as, as so much. I mean, not only medical ideas about caring for people, but also spiritual and social and so on and so forth. And on the spiritual end, the place I was preparing to work with anyway, was really explicit about the idea of uh, recognizing as people are there in that time of life where hospice would be called in, that you know they're dying, they're heading toward the end, that uh, it's helpful for caregivers and, and people who love these other people who are dying to recognize they really are stepping over, you know, further and for their identity, the place where they're located is moving farther and farther on the other side of that line, right? It's over mm -hmm. in death. So you'll see them becoming less communicative, letting go of things because they're their self, their identity, who and where they are is just progressively and maybe rapidly less invested here. And yeah. um, I don't know, that really, that struck me and has stayed with me when we're talking about trying to come to terms with the, the, the blunting of that edge of mental sharpness that some of us have been familiar with our whole lives, you know, that sharpness and the inability to recall things or you lose your train of thought more and more, just whatever, the physical things that come with it, that almost encounter that close encounter with uh, being employed for by hospice has stayed with me to the point where when this started happening to me you know forgetfulness whatever physical things i'm a lot more stiff i feel like uh, dennis quaid in the movie the rookie you know when he steps off the bus when he's traveling with that minor league team and all the young guys are just jumping out walking off and he's like all oh, stiff you know i sort of yeah, have that i yeah. sort of have that thing in mind it's like you know for real there's this progressive disinvestment uh, and it's not, and, and it's reflected yeah. by these changes that are happening, and they're not necessarily bad. That is why, as Eckhart Tolle would point out, traditionally old age has been the time in every culture that uh, has been associated with increasing spirituality, and the elders are the wise ones, and so on. Not just because they've gained more knowledge, but because they are increasingly becoming detached from the phenomenal world, the world of form and ego. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are we in it? Are we in it right now? Sorry, I, I want to make sure. Well, that, that was so good. That we was, were just yeah. we were we were just shooting the shit, but then Matt had to go and say something brilliant, so now we got to keep it <laughs> yeah. in the show. Uh, <laughs> I actually have a point that I you see. I remember now what my point was. My attitude now is that as long as I get back to the point, eventually it's okay, right? <laughs> um, to my delight, you were talking about John Horgan and how his book fascinated you and what seemed to happen to John Horgan, if I understood your account correctly, is that he had a spiritual experience that fucked him up, as spiritual experiences often do. And then he just had this need to process it, to talk to people, to understand what happened to him. And I'm struck with how many people who are important to you, at least to go by your writing and what the demon said are people of that sort. Robert Anton Wilson, for example, certainly, uh, you know, I guess you don't talk about Phil K. Dick that much, really, you do mention him, but but Dick would be another example. Uh, I feel like almost any writer probably on occult topics has probably had some kind of experience that I think of as a kind of a wounding 
almost, except I don't mean it to sound as bad as that. But like the archetypal figure that I have in mind is Amfortas from the old, like the Fisher King story. Of course, being a Wagnerian, I think of Wagner's opera, Parsifal. But Amfortas is the wounded king who has suffered a wound that cannot heal. And in Wagner's opera, it was a wound suffered in trying to retrieve the Holy Spirit, which had been abducted by an evil sorcerer named Klingzor. And he's wounded by the spear, and the only thing that can heal him is the touch of the spear that wounded him. And it seems to me that, first of all, a lot of the people that we talk about on this show and the people that you talk about in your writing, but perhaps also you, yourself, and perhaps also JF and me, are in a certain sense wounded and are wounded in the sense of like something happens to you and that opens up a fissure, a gap in the imposed wholeness, <laughs> in the imposed integrity of our lives, like the stories that we tell about our lives that kind of keep us held together with bailing twine and, uh, and chewing gum, right? But these events that have a kind of unignorable self-validating quality, mystical experiences or whatever, maybe they're psychedelic experiences, but, you know, experiences had in sleep paralysis or under the effects of psychoactive drugs, or even sometimes just walking around and being a person. You might have an event that will tear a hole right in that tissue of self-legitimating narratives. And that's what I mean by a wound. And it can be a very productive wound. It's a wound that can cause you to become prey to this kind of demonic possession where you have to write out your wound. You have to write it through. We were talking about teaching, and I was thinking about how, you know, students always seem to imagine that what a teacher is is somebody who has all the answers, that the teacher is somebody who's got their shit together. But speaking at least for myself, it seems to me that this quality of woundedness, of there being some gap that you spend a lifetime trying to fill, or a tear that you spend a lifetime trying to sew up, probably never actually accomplishing that, that same kind of motivation seems to me also to be present in teaching. At least it is for me. Mm-hmm. Again, this is more of a comment than that's, a question. That's all right. <laughs> I, have the, I, I, know, I know the feeling. I do, and uh, not to respond so much to the teaching thing at the moment, but just the general idea, this theme has built up, this idea has built up in my life that... that uh, and I've said this to my wife several times in the past several years, that uh, if there is a, like a, a meta-narrative of human life, at least of mine, and she concurs when I say this to her, and she has her own arc, of course, you know, we're, we're parallel, we're bound together, but she's had her own arc. If there is some kind of meta-narrative is that life is overall an experience of being born into certain circumstances with certain characteristics, kind of this program, right? And having it build up in each person's mind, I know in mine, this view of what life is and what the world is and what to expect and what to hope for. And here's what things are and here's how things work and here's where things are going and reaching some point where you realize that is all absolute horse shit and then it blows it apart and you spend the rest of your life trying to figure out, okay, 
how was I so fooled? And basically, uh, this doesn't have to be a bad word. It's basically a process of building up an illusion and then disillusioning you. And you can take that disillusionment as awful or in any way you want. And I, that's right. kind of what I started to figure out a while back. And it doesn't just have to do with such relatively or nominally interesting things as having been afflicted with uh, sleep paralysis, with hypnagogic, you know, demonic attacks and all that, which, by the way, I, I in, put in going back to my journal entries, you know, and writing those up, I did find when I first started to write about those. So that's interesting. That'll be in the in my collected journal oh, that'll come out. But it also has to do with such mundane things as family relationships, job work, other things. My parents got divorced when I was 28 years old after 32 years of marriage, and that pretty much blew my psyche apart. And I was already deeply into things, the sleep paralysis things and all the, the sort of transformative stuff that came from that when that happened. Divorce of your parents, that's fairly mundane. Rocked my world and everyone around me saw it. I mean, I took a year or two, three to let the let that somehow integrate. I've had various job changes. My boyhood church, you know, encountered a really difficult period around the same time that my parents got divorced and it spooled out over several years after that. And that thing is now not even, doesn't even look anything like it was. It's completely different. The whole environment is different. I mean, it's not even the same thing. And it, and it went through a period of great division and so on and so forth. So it's like this church environment that was everything when I was young. It's not the same. It's not just like an older version of the same church. No, it was rocked by some real trauma and so on and so forth. Everything, everywhere, you know, is this, for me in my life is like, I, I can't name a single thing in terms of human relationships and other things that hasn't been this thing. Oh, this is the way life is up until you're about 17 or 29 or 35. No, it's not. That's not the way life is at all. So again, I probably bring, I'm sure I bring that into any interactions I've had with the uh, students. And of course, some students are quote, non-traditional students and they're your, your age or older, right? So they're, they're maybe the same place or, or elsewhere in their life journey, even further advanced if age is a measure of that. But lots of them are really young, conventional, traditional age students, 18, 19, 20, 21. And I'm looking at them going, wow, you know, I remember when I was you, not you, but you. And so that's, uh, that's contributed. My, my reaching this point in myself has contributed a lot to the way I learned how to interact with my students was to think you're relatively at the beginning of all this. I don't know where you've been. I don't know where you're going, but I really want to try and remember to treat you as an individual who's going to have your own experience, probably of this meta theme that I think I've discerned. Yeah. I like, I like the way you put it. Yeah. Reminds me of Peter Berger's idea of the sacred canopy, right? Uh, which you, you bring up in your essays. Yeah. That's, that was really um, influential. I mean, you got your sacred canopy of meanings, cultural meanings, religious meanings, right? That covers your world. And unfortunately some things don't fit within that grid, right? Don't fit yeah. within that matrix. When they come in, you've got a nameless, literally thing that is suddenly this alien threat that you have to find out how to assimilate or not. Maybe it exactly. continues to be a threat. And it can take a rather mundane apparel, as you say, like it could be a divorce, it could be something that's relatively unexciting from a speculative fiction point of view, perhaps, but it doesn't make it any less a shard of chaos than, than sleep paralysis. It's funny because Berger's metaphor of the canopy, uh, Deleuze, who's a philosopher that I draw on a lot, uh, Gilles Deleuze in his last book with Felix Guattari, 
they use exactly the same metaphor for describing what they call doxa, which is um, thinking less on an individual level, but on more of a societal level, like a society or civilization will create, uh, they call it an umbrella, or at least that's what the translator uses in the English version, an ombrelle. It's like a, a canopy on which you paint the figures of the firmament, and then you imagine yourself in the great outdoors, but really you're just, you've spread this canopy over over, mm -hmm. over your world in order to make sense of things. But then one day a tear appears and the chaos of the real is suddenly kind of starts to leak in. And uh, they say that philosophy, science, and art are ways of, they shouldn't be about painting things on the firmament, painting things on the canopy. They mm -hmm. should be about tearing the canopy and going into the chaos and bringing stuff back, mm -hmm. uh, not in order to destroy the canopy, which would be the kind of the Georges Bataille version of that, but in order to constantly renew and patch up the canopy and expand the canopy so that more and more of the real gets incorporated into our civilizational paradigm. What, I, Phil, ooh, I see you, you just wagging your finger. You just got me thinking, but why <laughs> is it that it's the only the spear that inflicted the wound on Mfortas is the thing that can cure the wound? Because, and you're talking about a tear in the canopy, got me thinking about it because the common sense approach would be to stitch that tear back up and restore the integrity of your canopy, your, your set of images that you were using as a substitute for the real. But that is uh, obviously, from a psychological point of view, going to have its limitations, that that is simply the forcible reestablishing of something that you know to be false. I mean, like once the kind of wound we're talking about here, the kind of tear emerges that we're talking about here, you can't unsee that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't unsee the tear in the canopy. So then this is the trick. How do you become unwounded? How do you heal this wound that will not heal? And the idea is like you tear it open, mm -hmm. you know, like you touch it with the weapon again yeah. and again and again. Very good. That's how you get out. Remember, um, I don't know if Alan Watts originated this, but he's where I first encountered it. Remember Watts's characterization of the common view of the human organism in the Western scientific and scientistic perspective as just uh, basically an, an ego in a bag of skin. Yes. And the outer periphery of that bag of skin is the outer periphery of your entire identity. So you're confronted with that completely alien universe, that total Cartesian dualism that you were talking about earlier that Rozak talks about in here versus out there. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, what you're saying, we go right with that. It's like, well, what's the cure? It's absolutely traumatic. And these things are kind of coalescing now because that theme of horror that we're talking about, you know, the, uh, JF and Bill that I, that I seem to have been drawn to, it's, and, and it's bound up with my religious uh, yearnings and longings. It's kind of that because I've said the version of this before. I think your personal self constitutes its own cosmos and has its own Lovecraftian outer rim beyond which you can hear the beating of black wings and the scratching of alien claws, you know, and the only way out is to, have it shredded. That could be your bag of skin being shredded. That could be your the outer rim of your psyche being shredded. Your cosmic egg has to crack in some way. And that goes back to the question of why I found it so fascinating to think that maybe it could be accurate to say that reality itself, beyond the horizon of that subjectivity, is necessarily in some way or to some degree, or maybe just intrinsically, horrific. 
because it represents some kind of threat. The only way there is to keep having that that hole in you ripped further open. And I'm reading a whole lot of non-dual stuff lately, and that's really where I've been for a long time. And keep encountering things, as you often do when you get on a tangent. You know, you keep seeing things that express this better and better for you. You know, reading things with people associated with Richard Rose, for example. Don't know if you know Rose, an American non-dual teacher. He's interesting to look up. They're pretty good at saying, uh, all the people in his lineage, I guess you'd say, even though it's informal, that uh, you got to remember that there is no enlightened you. I mentioned this earlier. There's no enlightened ego. All non-dual teachers will say this, but Rose was pretty good about it. <laughs> He's like, anything that you think it is, it's not, because everything that it is, you're not. It's the exact absence of everything that you ever thought you were. Are you ready for this? It's the death of everything that you take to be yourself. And that's why it is the ultimate trauma, even as it is also the, the salvation and the liberation that you're looking for. You can't think it, you can't say it. In my mind this morning, I was my mind in meditation this morning started formulating this thing that said, you can literally never speak the truth. And you can literally never think the truth. You can literally never see the truth. You can literally never feel the truth because the truth is you. You know, you are the truth. You can't see it. The eye can't see itself, right? But that this place where most of us live is in this limited, constricted sense. And so this truth that you are, that you can't see, you can't think, and so on. Notice how that's Lovecraftian. You know, it's unspeakable, right? It's unnameable. It's there with you the whole time. I think it's uh, Avatar, the intermediary to you, as Plato and others intuited, maybe as your daimon or your demon muse, you know. But the real thing is that shredding of you with that spear that keeps touching you. It's almost like your, whatever your wolf's bane is or whatever your kryptonite is or something like that has to kill you. And then you reach it. But that doesn't sound very nice, does it? It's not as nice as hearing that, that uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, or whatever. But <laughs> there are different ways of getting there, it seems. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>